Warning, this podcast contains heavy spoilers for not just one movie, but entire franchises. We highly recommend going and watching these movies before listening to us as a companion piece that stitches all the timelines into one creepy, crime-ridden story. There will be no more spoiler warnings. We do not break character. After this, there is no turning back. You've been warned. Hit the music. <laughs> you are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Hello and welcome to It's Alive Alive Podcast. This is a true crime paranormal interstellar podcast covering unbelievable stories that sound like they were ripped straight from the pages of a Hollywood script. I'm your host, a man of many names, the outlaw Harley Ray, the bruiser Bronson, Dr. H.R. Smokenstein, THC, or you can call me Josh for short. And with me as always is my very own Scream Queen, the perfect combination of beauty and brains, the brightest smoking DNA, hard experts, the guts and gore, the gorgeous, the great, sexy Amy Rose. Hi. Just once I'd like to do that without slipping up a little bit. I slipped up just a tiny bit just as I was Where? about to say gorgeous. <laughs> it just, it just, it's always was like this little tiny catch that I get caught somewhere because along you that. you don't think I'm actually gorgeous? No, I know you're gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe two weeks ago we went back and we did the great Ghostface reboot. Did a George Lucas on it and gave our debut episodes a bit of a facelift. Yeah, well, like we keep saying, we want to release the best stories. And while I can't see us doing that very often, if we feel we put something out that isn't up to our standards, then we will go back and update or redo the story. Especially when it's a story like the Ghostface Killers. That story is too good and so ingrained in pop culture from the Stab franchise that we couldn't justify leaving them up as they were. Like There was so much more to add and discuss. It had to be done. Yeah, we'll never run out of Ghostface material. The Ghostface fanboys and girls will make sure of that. To be honest, I'm fascinated by it. I could talk about this phenomenon for hours. It's the only case I can think of off the top of my head that's been a case of mass hysteria past true legend. Is it though? It seems to me so far it's just been one long story of revenge. Would Billy have been a killer regardless of Maureen Prescott? Would Nancy have done what she did if it wasn't to avenge Billy? And would Roman have been a psychopath if he had a proper upbringing or at least some sort of acknowledgement from his birth mother? For all these answers and more, tune in next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Funny. Uh, uh, Yeah, you're right. This has been a big revenge-driven story up until this point. And unfortunately, the questions you're asking will never really be answered. But we can always speculate as to what the possible future would have held for the former Ghostface. I mean, Billy might not have gotten the push from Maureen to kill, but he still had Stu as an influence. And he Mm -hmm. was the man motivated solely by the thriller to kill. My personal opinion, Maureen Prescott just gave him an excuse to start a killing spree. If it was just about revenge for Billy, then the goal was achieved in the death of Maureen Prescott. But it wasn't, and he made the decision to continue his killing spree. And I mean, this is a common thing with serial killers. Mm. They're known for, like, they'll give themselves small allowances. They'll work their way up to the, the crime. Like the Golden State Killer, we've talked about him before. Originally, he was the Visalia Ransacker, yeah. where he was just going in and ransacking the house and looking through your shit. Yeah. Then he became the East Area Rapist. Mm-hmm. And that was his next step. And he, his next allowance, he was going to touch them. He was going to do stuff to them. He was going to try and control the person. Yeah. Yeah. And then the next step was to take co- total control and was to, well, I've went this far. 
no, why am I leaving witnesses alive? I'm going to get caught. I might as well kill them. Yeah. So then that becomes the next step. And it was the same with, um, oh, what's his name? The big guy, Ed Kemper. Oh, yeah. Like Ed talked about afterwards how he had to build up to it. And it was a case of, you know, first he was just giving these girls, he was picking up hitchhikers, like girls, and yeah. driving them to where they wanted to go. But he was had him in the car, and yeah. that was an allowance from him. He was like, I have him in the car. I can if I want to. Then he'd drive with them in the car with the doors locked, and he's like, no, the doors are locked. If I want to, I can do this. If I really, really want to, I can do it. Mm. And it's all a build-up to eventually actually committing the crime. Dahmer and Bundy had to get drunk to commit their crimes. Do you know? Yeah. Bundy yeah. admitted himself, and Dahmer, both of them said like, that they needed the alcohol to push them over the edge, to take them out of rational thinking and to allow them to do what they did. Do you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Dahmer was uh, known to be a fucking alcoholic from high school, like, do you know? That he used to go around with a hip flask in high school and was drunk 90% of the time, like, do you know? So, yeah, so that that's kind of what I think Maureen Prescott was. It was an excuse to start killing. But I think regardless of Maureen Prescott, that excuse would have shown up somewhere at some oh, stage. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyhow, yeah. From, like, do you yeah. know? Definitely. Oh, and he admitted to, Kate, to, to Sydney that if he and Stu had gotten away with the original killings, they would have went on to create their sequel. Even if you stretch out the revenge narrative to Sydney, by the end of the first killing spree, the Prescott family would have been totally annihilated. So the murder for revenge excuse just doesn't cut it. No, Nancy, on the other hand, I do believe she was just a very mentally unwell well woman. Not pushed over the edge by yeah. her son's actions and violent death. I would say, had Billy not been a ki- been killed, she probably would have never gone on to kill the way she did. And unlike Billy and Stu, she wouldn't have had the outso- outside psycho influence to push her along, regardless of the circumstances. No, maybe if she had found out when she found out he was a killer, that might have pushed her over the edge yeah. as well. But yeah. if none of that had happened, I think she would have just been a mentally unwell woman forever. And that's mm. about it. I mean, I know there's heavy suspicion that Mickey Altieri was already an active killer prior to taking up the Ghostface moniker, he would have been a killer by himself had he had never crossed paths with Nancy or the Ghostface gimmick. What about Roman, though? You reckon that acknowledgement from Maureen would have stopped all this from kicking off at all? I, I mean, he seems uh, like a fragile, whiny little bitch. I think ego drove him. Well, I did say that about him in his episode, that the reason I thought he had less to do with Billy's actions than he claims was so he could be seen as a savior or an evil mastermind, depending on how the dice roll landed. Either way, he was coming out as a top guy. Well, he was in the unique position that he could write the narrative he wanted and anyone that could dispute it were long dead and buried. And that's the issue. We really have nothing but theories and circumstantial evidence when it comes to the bizarre chain of chain reaction that saw 28 people lose their lives over three separate attacks. When you first brought up the topic of the ghost face killers, I thought it was a murder cult or serial killer gang like the Shankill Butchers. Better explain that reference for all our non-Irish listeners. The Shankill Butchers is the name given to an Ulster loyalist gang, many of whom were members of the Ulster Volunteer Force, or the UVF, that was active between 1975 and 1982 in Belfast, Northern Ireland. It was based in the Shankill area and was responsible for the deaths of at least 23 people, most of whom were killed in sectarian attacks. The gang was notorious for kidnapping and murdering random civilians from the Catholic community. Each was beaten ferociously and had their throats hacked with a butcher's knife. Some were also tortured and attacked with a hatchet. 
The gang also killed six Protestants over personal disputes and two other Protestants whom it mistook for Catholics. Most of the gang were eventually caught and in February 1979 received the longest combined prison sentences in United Kingdom legal history. However, gang leader Lenny Murphy and his two chief lieutenants escaped prosecution. Murphy was killed in November 1982 by the provisional IRA, likely acting with loyalist paramilitaries who perceived him as a threat. If you want to hear more about Murphy, check out my Mini Monsters episode 14 up on Spotify right now. This all happened in Northern Ireland during a period that is known as the Troubles. When Irish Catholics and UK Loyalist uh, Protestants fought over whether the Northern Counties should be kept under UK rule or returned to make up a united Ireland. The violence at this time was indescribable, with multiple different paramilitary groups taking it upon themselves to wage war on each other over a long-running dispute. A lot of very real, very brutal atrocities happened during this time. The Shankill Butchers being one of the most vicious. Not approved or sanctioned by any paramilitary group, the Butchers were seen by many as just a roaming gang of serial killers, although in their minds they were soldiers just like the rest of the men fighting in the north. That's a very brief roundup of it. If you want more details on it, uh, on the butchers or the history of the Troubles themselves, check out the Troubles podcast. I listen to an episode of Day at Work, but that's just because it's all really, you know, it, it, it's all I can handle, to be honest. Mm, it's yeah. super interesting and a really well, well-researched show, but being Irish and listening to what happened here, it can be a bit upsetting. Yeah. It's not one I just throw on as a pick-me-up or anything, if you get what I mean. Yeah. So I keep it to one a day. <laughs> I mean... Growing up, we grew up in the 90s here. Mm. So the Troubles would have kind of been at its end at that point. Oh, I mean, like, a few minutes of the Oma Oma bombing, bombing is the huge. one that we'd remember. Yeah. That would have been the last big one that happened. And that was the early 90s. And I remember, I remember going down, we went down to the athletics club yeah. that weekend after it happened. And my granddad was big into athletics. So he was kind of one of the head guys there, one of the trainers. Mm. And we went down there and I remember us all stopping and we were only watching, we were down there with my mom, mm. and uh, stopping for a minute's silence mm. uh, for the Oma bombing. And I, I was asking my mom what it was, and obviously I'd seen it in the news myself, oh, it was yeah, all over yeah, the place for a yeah. couple of days. But outside that, I don't think, I mean, like, we're from Kerry, which mm-hmm. would have been, well, I'm from Kerry, you're from Tipperary. From Tipperary. Kerry was, and yeah, probably still is, a big IRA. It was a hot spot. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's because of all the beaches. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, yeah. So they got, yeah. you get shit in and out. Bad, Park was a big spot for them yeah, as well, like, yeah. you know, for the very same reason. Uh, but have you, you have a few stories there, Rob. Not particularly from like the actual, it would have been before, before. Um, Ireland was split, like when we're still under English rule, like there's very big generation gaps on my on my dad's side. So my, my granduncle would have been, he, he would have been in his, in his teen, kind of late teens, early twenties, like at the, at the start of the of last century. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was out one day, and Black and Tans pulled him into the into the truck, whatever they were driving, and they held a gun to his head. I was basically letting every all the Irish know that if he do anything to this, this guy is going to get a bullet. Basically, well, it was rough. Like yeah. I mean, my, my mom taught me that my dad coming over and back from London because he used to live in London for a short while, mm. coming over and back. That he got pulled into a room at one stage by the British Army and questioned, like, "Who yeah. are you? Where are you coming from? What's your?" 
mother's maiden name what's your name what's your oh, mother's yeah, maiden yeah. name yeah. what religion are you where are you from oh, yeah. you know what's your profession what's your reason for being here everyone was watched because there was Irish oh, going over there to lay bombs and get out of there like I know? think if you if, if you really want to see what it was like over here uh, even at the, the, during when we got our independence like even the war that came from from, from that the wind that shakes the barley is the one to watch because that's no exaggeration well, at that's all, at where all. the kind of civil war breaks out yeah, where yeah, we yeah. start fighting with each other over whether we should take mm. a deal with the British or we shouldn't. But they shouldn't. show they show the black tans at the start of that. Oh, That's yeah. It is, it is a good depiction. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of movies out there that kind of mm. show the plight of the Irish. I mean, you see Hunger with Bobby Sands. I've never really seen shows. Hunger. No? No. With Michael Fassbender? No. That's, no. The, that's the one that really kind of shows the, the plight of the fight, yeah. the rebels up in oh, yeah, the north, yeah. like, you know. But and then Name of the Father shows how bad we were treated then when we were over. Yeah, complicated history. Mm. But I mean, see, there's something, it's, it's hard to kind of call it. Even as an Irish person now listening to those podcasts, it's mm. hard to justify what you're listening to. But at the same time, you know that there was a lot of people suffering. It, 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 it's, it's really, I think it, our generation doesn't fully understand what went on back because then. We didn't and it's hard it. for us to comment on it now because of the way society has went. Yeah. That you can't really be poor against either of these things because you could get in trouble for it. Oh, yeah. I think you have to have a very, very objective view. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think when it, you know, when I listen to some of those stories, both sides did wrong. Both sides you did know, do wrong. Multiple fucking times. Yeah, yeah. And that was because they were, in a lot of fucking cases, untrained soldiers. To, is what they call job, mm-hmm. and I mean I have not. You know me when I come to say like I'd love a United Ireland, and I am one hundred percent kind of Irish, Irish. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I'd see Bobby Sands as a fucking hero. Of course, know? yeah. I mean, I've read his book, and uh, I would see that side as yeah. But at the same time, I hear some of the stuff they've done, and I'm like, holy fuck, that man, is wrong. That that was wrong. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's fine to say, oh, it was just a mistake, but it, it, there's too many, too many regular people mm-hmm. were killed in all of that. Yeah. To be just fucking seen as accidents or slip you know, sir, yeah. casualties of war. Do you know, it's like. Yeah, it's fine when the soldiers are making the decision to go to war. It's yeah. fine when you're... Fine, it's not good, but when you're fucking called on by your government to go to war, you're forced to go to whatever, that's still shitty, but at least you're going to a specific place to wage your fucking war. It's when regular people get mixed up in it. Oh, yeah. that it's like, that shouldn't... Well, I, I always say to our mom Batten's grandkids the time, that was wrong. Oh, that was terrible. That was wrong. It was... But I mean, it's not. I mean, again, just to talk about. I mean, I'm not completely. You know, I am anti-war. I think it's fucking terrible. Oh, yeah. I think the whole idea of the whole concept yeah, of it's yeah. terrible. I was listening. Like I've said many times on this show that I'm a big fan of the last podcast. I listened to during the summer they did a, a, a big piece on World War Two because of what was on with Oppenheimer coming out and all yeah, that shit. Yeah. They pulled it out and they, they did this big thing on the bombings of fucking in Japan. Mm. That shit was war crime. Yeah. One hundred percent. Oh yeah. Like, and the only reason no one's calling them out is because they're the biggest, baddest bully mm. in the fucking <laughs> in the world. But it's like, fucking you know? chilling what happened over there. I remember oh, our like headmaster telling us like in sixth class, and we came away fucking traumatized out of primary school. But yeah, my yeah. point being, when I say about these guys up the north, that whether you agree or disagree with them, they were acting in a place. There's a lot of people in those situations who wouldn't have done what they did if they didn't feel they were in a position of war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these assholes who we're about to talk about right now. Oh, we're not in that position. They were just mm-hmm. dickheads killing for the sake of fucking killing. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So, so 
So, I mean, I had 12 killers, six maskers. It sounds organized and planned. But really, when you dig deep, you realize it's really three separate stories that are loosely linked by this mask and the Loomis and Prescott families. I agree. Our first three episodes really explore the revenge story spurred on by the treatment of Maureen by the Hollywood elite and the effects that left on her mentally. How these pervy old men's actions led to Maureen suffering mentally and again started the chain of events that eventually led to not just Maureen's death, but the death of so many more. But the point is, when it comes to those events, you can understand how they came about, how it all happened. We can see each step of the story and how one bad turn brought on another, eventually ending where it supposedly started with Roman Bridger and the Hollywood elite. And that was it for a long time, 11 years to be exact. So you said in our second episode that eventually the stab movies that were inspired by the ghost face killers would eventually become the inspiration for the copycats. But looking at our story today, it seems to me like the rise of the social media age and the Instagram influencer was the catalyst to today's story. I mean, there's definitely elements of the movie nerd taking it too far in Charlie Walker. But let's face it, by the end of of today's episode, we see that Charity was nothing more than a pawn in the ultimate path to fame led out by Jill Roberts. I could hear our parents' generation now. That's what's wrong with you young people today. He just wanted e- an easy path to money. No work ethic. They just want it all handed to them. Well, then they obviously haven't had to dispose of a body or clean up a crime scene. Like, that shit takes serious work. A lot of planning and effort goes into a job like that. Wait, what? What? So, the, uh, the Stab movies by 2011, what number are they on? Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, they're on Stab 7 by 2010. And that will be the last until Ryan Johnson's soft reboot with Stab 2021. Stab 7 released again through Sunrise Studios was written by Will Kennison, directed by Max Weinberg, and starred Kristen Bell as our main ghostface. Kennison has an interesting enough story himself. So sometimes it seems like Will Kennison was born into a movie of his own. After surviving a near-fatal fall from a tree as a child, Will spent the remainder of his adolescence recovering in a head trauma centre. There he met Dr. Alice Ehlers. Ehlers? I think so. Yeah. The screenwriter of the drama, who said that? Who trained Will in the craft and sent him to Hollywood at the age of 18. Five years later, Will sold his first spec script, The Twisted Real Estate Agent of Death, to Sunrise Studios. He gained national attention for his witty style of gore after his smash hit stab. Today, Will is one of the Hollywood's hottest writers, the scribe of nearly one dozen feature films in addition to his hit teen television drama, Young Spielbergs. Stab 7, just like the movies before, was based on a Gale Weathers book, but due to the lack of real-life source material to work from since the 2000 attack by Roman was not based on true events. Gale had taken to writing fiction based on her real-life encounters with the psychotic gang of killers. Stab 4, 5, 6 and 7 were based on Gale's books Knife of Doom, Clock of Doom, Ghostface Returns and Knife of the Hunter, respectively. So did she write the time travel shit into Ghostface Returns or did the scriptwriters take creative liberties with that? Because honestly, that's where the movie loses me. Uh, Stab is supposed to be a meta whodunit story and the time travel storyline took me right out of it. Like, 
not that Rain Johnson did much better two years ago with the reboot. Yeah, that film was a remixed, highly unreliable and muddled retelling of the second Woodsboro murders. Actually, the story we're going to cover today. Mm. The movie versions, though, is only loosely based on the events because, for legal reasons, they could only use some of the survivor's stories, names, and likenesses. Sydney was sick of having her story rehashed and retold, so she pretty much told Sunrise Studio execs that if her story, family, or name was used again, she'd sue the shit out of the studio and run the place into the ground. Fair play, Sydney. After all she's been through and lost, I'm sure sure she just wanted these stories to fuck off so she could get on with her life actually we'll see today that she did the opposite and instead embraced her past by writing a book about her experiences the book we have referred to many times as a main source in the research for these ghostface stories and that's out of darkness the semi-autobiographical self-help book released in 2011 tells Sydney's story and family background while giving out advice and tips to, on dealing with past trauma, survivor's guilt, betrayal and learning how to trust again after a violent or abusive relationship. The book went on to become a bestseller and has helped a lot of victims of traumatic events. It also went on to inspire the events that we're about to get into today. So let's do it. Let's head back to our roots and where it all kicked off and started for us. We're heading back to Woodsboro, California, 2011. And today we cover the tale of Jill Roberts and Charlie Walker, Ghostface number six and seven, massacre number four. Hey, you. Yeah, you. You like the podcast? Want some more? Then head on over to our Patreon page where for just five euro a month you get up to 12 extra shows in that month along with piles of mini-sodes covering fun facts from the world of horror and true crime. Each week we drop multiple shows such as Real Monsters where we look at the inspiration behind the movie killers or Behind the Mask where we take a look at the influential people and happenings in the world of Hollywood. All this, plus movie reviews, watch-alongs, and regular AMAs. That means ask me anything. You really do get a bang for your buck. And, and by bang, I mean, like, podcast. I'm not soliciting or anything. Shit. Um, moving on. For just five euro a month, all this could be yours. So head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash IAAPod. That's www.patreon.com forward slash IAAPod. And start listening now. So who exactly were Jill Roberts and Charlie Walker and what motivated them to take up the mantle as the ghost face killers? 11 years after their predecessor Roman Bridger's death at the hands of his half-sister Sidney Prescott. That was really hard not to say Roman Reigns, I'll be honest. Roman Bridger. I keep going to say it. Every time I say Roman Bridger, I nearly say Roman fucking Reigns. How will we take out the tribal chief? However, I do know the answer to this one. Oh, God. It's because they have severe personality disorders and are narcissistic psychopaths who have no conscience or moral compass. Well, yeah, I, I was thinking like a little more generally, like the reasoning and thought process behind the crimes as opposed to the deep mental health issues that might have drove them. But it's all relevant. There's no wrong answers here. They did it in the name of their lord and saviour, Cotton Weary, who was communicating with them by time travel, which was only possible by wearing a voodoo, coast, voodoo cursed ghost face mask. Okay, that's a solid right, a wrong answer right there. I told you we couldn't use Gale's fiction books as story references, especially Ghostface Returns or Stab 6 and Stab 2021. So you're telling me I read that crap for nothing? Yep. Right. Wish I could go back in time and not read it. Sorry, Gail, but you're a better journalist than you are a novelist. Do you realize that although the Ghostface killers are generally seen as Woodbro Woodsboro crimes, this is only the second time that this has happened in Woodsboro itself. 
The town had gone back to being a generally safe place to live after the 1996 attacks perpetrated by locals Billy Loomis and Stu Mocker. In fact, this massacre is known as the Remake Massacre by the media. This is a time when Hollywood was pumping out remakes to nearly every successful horror movie from the past. Most likely spurring on the idea with Jill and Charlie to remake the story that they had grown up on. The stab movies did great business in Woodsboro. The generations that came up behind the original killers were fascinated by the story of the local killers. Of course you would be. We're both from small towns. This is the kind of story that would linger and be told by the older generations to spook the kids. It'd be the scary story told at every teenage party. There'd be a release party for every stab movie. Having a movie based on your town and the families you know are related to, it's, you know, it'd be a big deal. Mm. I'd even go so far as to say the town, it would, this is the way the town was dealing with the tragic events of 1996. I mean, you see, he, see it here in Ireland. Mm. Murder here is national news when it happens. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying we're the safest place in the world, but in 2022, the US had 21,156 recorded murders or non-negligent manslaughter. Jesus. Ireland had 69. Yeah, there <laughs> is a big difference. I remember seeing so, the bullet figures of how many bullets were shot by the U by American cops versus how many bullets shot by the German cops in the space of a year. And there was, I mean, like, I don't think it even, like, passed 30, 40 bullets, like, by the Germans. Well, but that's it. Like, our cops don't even carry fucking guns. We have special armed police that are called in in case of emergency. Like, oh, like a the SWAT time team. when the, your one with the knife came into my work that time. Yeah. yeah. The, the armed response unit yeah. would be called in. But to the most part, our guys don't hold guns. No, no. So, yeah, each case gets the front page news here. Do you know? So, yeah. I mean, the effect of a murder... The, we know the effect a murder has on a community. It's not used to this level of violence. Oh, huge. We know how the story can linger, how relations and friends of the offenders and of the victims still have to live in close proximity to each other. How the trials all play out in the media for each unlawful death that happens mm. for the next few generations the killer's names live on through that family link as do the victims or in this case the survivor we saw it in the michael myers case what can happen to the families of survivors and the backlash the survivors themselves can take from the families of other victims mm. not to mention the survivor's guilt felt after seeing all the people close to you be carved up time and time again yeah and funny enough just like laurie strode sydney prescott had also released her book Writing must be therapeutic. They're all doing that. I suppose before digging into Jill and Charlie, we should talk about what's been going on over the past decade since the last Ghostface attacks. You see, last time this happened, TVs were chunky, music was still on discs, and our phones were Nokia 3210s. They were used for custom ringtones, texting, and playing Snake. That's it. Uh-huh. In the decade that has passed, though, we had advanced in technology by leaps and bounds, and the old 3210s have been resigned to the rubbish drawer in the kitchen and been replaced by sleek new smartphones. Every book, magazine, comic, song, album, show, or movie is in your pocket and at your fingertips at all times. And all this was made possible by the rise of the internet. Along with these entertainment upgrades came social media and the age of the influencer. Social media made it possible for people everywhere to instantly connect, pass information and news, keep in contact and even see people as you spoke to them across the world by FaceTime. The answer to every question you could ever have was there in your hand, just a quick Google away. Just like everything else in life, though, the internet is used for much more than entertainment and knowledge. And with the whole world holding high-end 4K HD cameras in their pockets, the notion of 15 minutes of fame or going viral became a real possibility and a guaranteed money-making rise to celebrity status. 
Funny how a decade before, if you had gone viral, you'd get the complete opposite re- reaction. No one would want to be next to near you. Yeah. <laughs> and tell me, why the fuck did we need to rename video chat to FaceTime? For years, when this was just a sci-fi dream, we called it video chat. Then it's finally invented and ready for the public. We decide, nah, video chat is lame. Let's call it FaceTime. Stupid fucking I think it's because FaceTime, is is that not an Apple trademark? No, it's a Facebook trademark. Is it? FaceTime. I thought FaceTiming was what you did on on iPhones. I thought it was what you did on Facebook. No, I just called them a messenger. Yeah, you FaceTime through messenger. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I have no fucking idea. Either way, it you should be. You asked a question. I'm answering it. It should be called video chat and video chat alone. all. <laughs> you know, that's it. I wouldn't mind. I remember seeing it in the 90s in The Simpsons and thinking it looked cool. FaceTime is a proprietary video and audio calling service developed by Apple. And also the Simpsons episode was Lisa's wedding when she was marrying the English guy Hugh Grant did the voice, I think, for him. Yeah, that was it. I couldn't wait to get that tech. I thought it would be awesome and i used to be you know I, I just thought i'd be using it all the time that would be it now i'm stricken with fear and confusion when anyone tries to video chat me literally <laughs> yeah. i get a video chat or a voice note and all i can think is what kind of monster is this text me a ring <laughs> oh, you psycho yeah. <laughs> i get fierce anxiety when my phone rings and it's a, they're always really nice phone calls but i'm like oh my god so we've established it takes a psycho to be an influencer and Jill Roberts was just that. Growing up in Woodsboro with her mother and the sister of Maureen Prescott, Kate and Jill Roberts were the only surviving members of the extended Prescott family left in Woodsboro. A fact Jill was never left to forget as she grew up. Born two years before the original massacre, it's safe to say Jill grew up under the shadow of Sydney's story. She watched as her cousin Sydney had risen to fame through violence and blood, seeing her story play out over books, interviews and movies all based on her life. Sydney Prescott was well known and near a household name at this point. Never more so than right now in 2011 as she hit the top of the bestsellers list with Out of Darkness. Sydney was on every chat show morning to late night and was currently doing the promotion loop for her book with the tour to end back where it all began at Woodsboro, 15 years on from the original attacks. For Jill, it had always been Sydney, 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 and how great and strong she was to have lived through so many atrocities in her life only to go on and use that to help others. Sydney had all the money and the fame and for what? Being lucky enough not to die? Yeah, as fucked up as it sounds, I can understand how a teenage girl growing up in a single parent house might fantasize or be jealous of her famous cousin, regardless of how that fame came about. That fantasy and jealousy would grow and fester in Jill's mind for over a decade as she grew more and more disillusioned with her life and social standings. From what I've read, Jill was pretty popular though. Like, she would have been seen as one of the hot girls in high school, usually followed around by the jocks trying to get into her pants. Yeah, and it was one of these jocks she planned to pin her future actions on. Jill would have been popular, but not cheerleader popular. She would have probably been like the next social level below the jocks and the cheerleaders by American standards. But yeah, still well liked and had a solid circle of friends to hang out with. Friends who would find themselves unknowingly dragged into Jill's sick little plan. Those friends being Kirby Reed, Olivia Morris, Robbie Mercer, ex and potential Patsy Trevor Sheldon, along with her accomplice and probably the one stringed along the most by Jill, Charlie Walker. Charlie Walker was born in 1993 and was three at the time of the original stabbings. It's kind of scary how much his story parallels with Stu Mockers, to be honest. Not a whole pile about Charlie's home life is really known about. 
we know nothing of out of the ordinary was really recorded not mentally or medically or legally against him except for a few warnings for your average teenage behavior underage drinking acting the prick stuff like that mm. he's said to have always been a bit of a strange kid in school though getting into horror and metal from a young age charlie was a huge mayhem fan and loved the story of their rise and fall in the late 80s early 90s for those of you that don't know, Mayhem were, uh, are, still are, fucking mm-hmm. going, a Norwegian black metal band that were responsible for a number of, a number of arson attacks on Christian churches throughout Norway. The extended group of bands associated with Mayhem will go on to harbor at least two murders. First was Bard Gulvik Faust Eaton, they call him Fausto, who played for various black metal bands over the years. On the 21st of August 1992, Faust, while visiting family in Lillehammer, had uh, stabbed Magne Anderson, Andreasen, sorry, to death. According to Faust, while walking home from a pub through the Olympic Park, a well-known gay cruising spot, Ander- Andreasen, Andreasen, these are hard names, <laughs> drunkenly approached him and solicited him for sex. Faust agreed to go with him to a nearby woods and stabbed him 37 times. Also, there was Varg Vickerson, a.k.a. Count Gershnak. He will be convicted of the murder of Mayhem bass player and founding member Oystin Araset, a.k.a. Euronymous, stabbing him to death over a royalties dispute and apparent power struggle for the black metal scene in Norway. Did you hear about their first lead singer? I did. Death. Yes. So... For the people who don't know, Death was the original lead singer for Mayhem. And just like his name, this guy was a depressed, a very, very, very depressed mm-hmm. and mentally ill man as well. Mm-hmm. And he was constantly talking about death and constantly talking about suicide. Mm. Um, so much so that they used to wear like um, what they kind of call death makeup coming out. Like kind of corpse, uh, corpse makeup. Yeah. So it would be the big black makeup around mm-hmm. the eyes and the pale white faces. But they used to bury their clothes before shows, a day or two before shows. They'd bury them in dirt and then take them out the day of the show and put them on so that they'd smell like some, uh, like a corpse, you know, oh, buried underground. Like, the you dirt, know. yeah. Uh, they were you known for using pig's blood. They were known for using kind of pig's fucking gore and guts and stuff like that in stage. And, yeah. and a few of their shows got cut because of like death. The place like, stink. Oh, yeah. yeah. But that's it. Their shows would always be cut short because of this shit. Yeah. And I think once or twice, maybe Det might have, like, stabbed him or, like, sliced himself on stage and kind of bled in the fucking crowd and stuff oh, like God. that. I can't verify that, but I think I read that somewhere. Uh, anyway, one night, they were all living in the same house where they were kind of working on their music. Yeah. And uh, one night, Det was in the house on his own. Mm. And Euronymous came back and found Det dead. Ooh. He had committed suicide. He had sliced both his... Uh, wrists open and shot himself in the head before Euronymous called for Euronymous or Euronymous Euronymous yeah he before he called anybody like the police or uh, an ambulance or anything like that I know dead was dead you know mm. he wasn't coming back like you know um, he took pictures of death's body and the crime scene mm. and it later became an album cover for one of their bootleg live CDs I think I have actually seen it somewhere Holy at some God. point. You can look it up and find it. But yeah, their lead, original lead singer's dead body laid out cover? was the cover of one of their albums. Oh. So yeah. Anyway, back to Charlie. With Mayhem being an early influence, Charlie went through a bit of a goth stage in his early teens. But by the time he had reached high school, that had been replaced with what was seen to be a Randy-influenced style and persona. What? Like Randy Randy? 
Randy Meeks. I hope so. He looked pretty funny dressed and acting like Randy Marsh. 17 years old, sporting a stylish old school tash, blue shirt, black pants. Or are we talking integrity, Randy? <laughs> Fucking so far. Anyway, these loose group of friends were all joined together from their common love of horror and the Stab franchise. Jill mainly from her family history and friendship with horror nerd Kirby. Charlie and Robbie through their association with Kirby through the Woodsboro High Cinema Club. And Trevor, who was a friend from youth but had drifted from the group since rising to high school fame as a jock. Trevor had re-entered the group in their junior year at Woodsboro High when he began dating Jill, later ruining that relationship by cheating on Jill with a girl named Jenny Randall. Would not want to be in Trevor or Jenny's shoes right now. If you were, you'd be lying six feet under Woodsboro Cemetery right now. Not thought as much. It's believed that this infidelity may have been the final nail in the coffin for Jill, the straw that broke the camel's back, as they say. But I think she had been planning this for much longer. Trevor's cheating just made him the prime target to become the surrogate Billy Loomis in her plan. You see, Jill's plan required a little grooming. I mean, you can't just walk up to anybody and say, hey, want to go on a killing spree? (laughs) She had to look around her, see who could play the best patsy. Billy needed a stew. That's how remakes work. Same characters, higher body count, more blood, and an original twist. But who would play the victims and who would play the patsy? She would be her own final girl, her own Sydney. But who could she manipulate easiest? Who would do exactly what she says and follow her every word? Ooh, I know this one. Yeah? A horny teenage incel asshole who doesn't know how to act around girls. Also known as Charlie Walker. (laughs) Charlie had come out of his shell since making the switch from middle school, got to high school horror geek, but still left a lot to be desired when it came to his people skills or ability to socialize with the opposite sex. Charlie was crazy for Kirby and everybody knew it, including Kirby herself, who being a bit more smooth about it than Charlie, likes to play hard to get with guys before finally pushing them to make a move. So she did fancy Charlie back, and if he had been patient enough, Charlie, unlike Randy before him, would have got the girl. But Kirby's teasing just led to an opening for Jill. That it did. Jill knew Charlie was obsessed with the Stab franchise to a level that was obviously very dangerous. So she also knew he was an idiot teenage boy who would do anything for attention of an attractive girl. So seducing Charlie, Jill convinced him of her plan, promising him the role of the Randy-like character in her remake. Only this time Randy gets the girl, ending the movie with Jill and Charlie, or Sydney and Randy, riding off into the sunset together, living off the fame of the frame job they put together, bound together by the secret of how they really achieved their fame. I love the way you say seduced. She probably showed Charlie a nipple and he came and now he's her slave for life. (laughs) (laughs) much. So they're going to do Billy and Stu's plan again, but this time just better planned. Well, won't it just get lost in all the other ghost face copycat stories? I mean, these days with the movies half being factual, half being fiction, it's impossible for the average onlooker to make sense of who and who's and what are real and fake. This time, though, we could watch it. Like we said earlier, this is the age of social media, the internet and smartphones. Actually, this is probably the very, very start of that age, ah. making Jill a bit ahead of her time. Maybe if she had jumped on the social media influencer thing early, she'd be known for a different reason today. But she didn't. Instead, planning to record each murder on camera and post the edited video of the killing spree online later for the whole world to see. 
So she planned to make, to remake this movie herself, not just be the inspiration for the next Stab movie. She would write, direct, edit, promote and star in the real life found footage Stab movie. Exactly. And what better time to put the wheels of her plan in motion. Sydney Prescott is coming to town and it's the 15th anniversary of Billy and Stu's reign. So with that being said, on Wednesday night, September 28th, 2011, a little after 10pm, Jenny Randall will get a call from a hooded shadow known as the Grim Reaper, but not before she met the ghost face killers in the sharp end of their knife. So that's Jenny Rand- Randall, like she was the girl Jill's ex Trevor cheated with, right? Yep, same girl. Huh, so obviously she's Jill's first target for that reason. Yep, first target, but not first kill. Along with Jenny Randall, her friend Maureen Cooper was also found slashed and stabbed to death in the Randall home. Forensic specialists have logged Maureen's death as first. It looks like it might have been a case of wrong place, wrong time for her. Mm. The professional theory is that both Jill and Charlie were present at this crime and that Marine was used to taunt and scare Jenny before they ultimately did the same to her. Both girls were found the following morning by the return home of Jenny's parents. Oh, deja vu. This is so similar to Casey, the, the Casey Becker murder. By design. This was a remake after all, and like all remakes, you give the audience a little bit of what they're familiar with, but up the ante just a little bit, changing it just enough that it's the same, but with a new spin to the tale. Do you know what's scary though? They were watching Stab 7 when this all went down. The DVD was found in the player with the TV on, so just as they watched the opening girls die in the movie, they got their own final phone call and suffered, suffered the legendary tricky Ghostface horror trivia game. That's fucked up. And Stab 7, the one with the fake-out intro too with Kristen Bell. It was the first movie to reveal one of the killers from the very start, keeping you guessing on the second for the rest of the film. But at the start of that, Kristen Bell's character is watching Stab 6 with Anna Paxton's character. And when Anna gets a bit critical of the genre, Kirsten stabs her, revealing her as a killer from scene one. It was a bright one bright spot in that movie, putting a twist on the long overrun double killer gimmick stab leaned on. I suppose because at this stage, two out of the three attacks had had two killers, so what could they do? But it was definitely a cool way to shake that up a bit for a franchise that, let's face it, at the time was growing stale. Yeah, stabbed worked better when it had, uh, you know, the semi-biographical thing going on. But with no source material in over a decade, the legend of Ghostface only lived on in Gale's books. Books which also had no source material, making them more and more supernatural as they went along. We said it before, Gail was a good writer and investigative reporter, but she was no Tolkien or Rowling, like, you know? Yeah. Speaking of Gail, she and Sheriff Dwight Dewey Riley had been living in Woodsboro for most of the previous decade. Gail now being known as Gail Riley. Weathers Riley professionally. Oh, they got hitched. I'm happy they got together in the end. We're nowhere near the end of the story or their story, but for now, yeah, all is going well. Can you ever let me have anything in these stories? I say I hope Randy has a happy life and dead. I say I hope Sydney has a happy life, more ghost face attacks come for her. And now Dewey and Gail, just let us be happy. Don't blame me, I'm not the stab fanatic and the scary mass stabbing people. But you are a stab fanatic, so it's half your fault. I'm not even going to try and argue with that. Mm. (laughs) Dewey was in town early the morning of September 29th. That week being the anniversary of the original murders, the town's teens kept decorating the streetlights with ghostface costumes. Other years, Dewey would turn a blind eye to this sort of behavior. Like we said before, it was the town's way of dealing with the trauma of the past, and he understood it. 
even enjoyed it a little bit as it showed him that the evil assholes behind the mask had not become the boogeymen they had hoped to become and instead were nothing more than pre-Halloween clowns for the tr- for the teens who used them as an excuse to party and get drunk with their friends. For the past few years, the teens of the town even held an annual group marathon stab viewing, usually held in an undisclosed location and was invite only. Were they afraid the party would be broken up because of them showing the movies in public? Like, surely there were a few of the survivors' family members still living in town that wouldn't appreciate watching their family member die again on the big screen outside of jail. Yeah, I'd say it was more because of the underage drinking and pot smoking. This was essentially a rave with a movie marathon attached to it. The organisers of this little shindig was none other than Charlie Walker and his friend Robbie Mercer, the president and vice president, respectively, of Woodsboro High Cinema Club. But that wasn't due to take place this year until Friday the 30th of September, the weekend. This is Thursday the 29th, and this is the day Sidney Prescott was coming to town. And as Dewey and his deputies stripped the light poles of the father debt rags on an emergency call came in. All units to the Randall residence. Two bodies have been found murdered. M.O. looks to be another ghost face. So we've talked before about the different classifications for killers like these. Like how serial killers are usually killers who kill more than three people over an extended period of time, usually taking what's known as a cooling off period that could range anywhere from a few weeks to a few months to a few years in between each murder. Mass killers usually take out a whole bunch of people all at once. Examples would be, you know, Cleveland and Harris in the Columbine High School Massacre, which we cover this week in depth on the show Real Monsters, available now on our Patreon. Then there's the ghost face killings. These massacres usually played out as killing sprees. Similar MO to the serial killer, just with no cooling off period. As soon as one body's down, they're on to stalking the next victim. The massacre of 2011 would be no different. Kicking off on Wednesday the 28th of September and coming to an end in the early hours of October 1st, leaving a body count of 11 in its wake. Nine victims and the two killers themselves. The body of Jenny Randall was found hanging in her living room, posed again to resemble Casey Becker from 15 years beforehand. On the wall, the words, what's your favorite scary movie were written, dripping down the walls in the victim's blood. Dewey, having survived events such as these three times previously, knew exactly how this game went and knew that if someone was planning to replay the crimes of Billy and Stu, then there's a good chance that Jenny would have received a phone call from her killer before her death. Unlike in previous cases, Dewey was able to trace the offending cell phone within an hour of arriving on the scene. Like we pointed out, earlier technology had moved on in leaps and bounds since the last time this happened. Cops were more than tech savvy, so a cloned phone still wouldn't be enough to keep the killers hidden for long. A tech specialist would see to that. Just ask Dennis Rader, he'll tell you just how tech savvy the cops have gotten. (laughs) But a tech specialist was not required in this case because Jill and Charlie wanted the phone to be found. They had planned for it because, again, playing off the past, the two budding killers taking inspiration from the originals, again, planted the offending phone along with the murder weapon and blood-soaked father death costume in the back of Sydney's rental car. Mirroring cotton and a blood-soaked jacket. This was actually a clever plan by Jill to keep her cousin in Woodsboro for the massacre. Because of the evidence being found in her car, she was now implicated in the crime, making her a suspect and keeping her tied to Woodsboro by blood once again. Sydney was a big piece to Jill's plan. Jill surmised that with Sydney around, she could never really take her place as the lone hero survivor. She needed to die in the final act too, passing the torch in a final blood-soaked ceremony. 
Jill's running on Highlander rules here. There can be only one. Gail, Dewey, Detective Kincaid and Joe the cameraman. Yeah, yeah. I, I said it was Jill's logic, not mine. Yep. Anyway, stuck in Woodsboro, Sydney accompanied Dewey back to the police station to try and work the case and figure out who might be behind the new round of attacks. When they arrived, they found Jill Kirby and Olivia Morris waiting. They had received a call from the killer earlier that day and after hearing of the murder of their classmates, decided to go and file a report. Again, we're seeing the dual killer game of misdirection. The killer calls Jill while in the presence of witnesses, instantly taking her off the radar when it comes to suspects. Because of her family name, she was constantly overlooked as a suspect. She was building the perception that she was a victim, trying to brand herself as the modern day Sydney Prescott, something she was extremely good at. As far as I can tell, no one ever even suggested the idea it could be Jill. And when she finally does get unmasked, it's a huge surprise for everyone involved. After an hour or two of combing over the stories and related evidence collected for the day, Jill, Kirby, Olivia and Sydney went home to try and get some rest. Deputies Haas and Perkins were assigned to watch over the house for the night. Sydney, Jill and Kirby went to stay in the Roberts home while Olivia, Jill's next door neighbour, decided to go stay in her own house, afraid to be too close to Sydney, who she saw as a type of angel of death. Which is fair enough considering she grew up hearing stories about this woman and how everybody close to her ends up being brutally killed. But unfortunately the wrong decision on the night in question. Oh no. Oh yes, because Olivia Morris is next on the chopping block. According to Kirby, they were relaxing in Jill's room watching Shaun of the Dead when the killer called. Charlie, using the trademark voice changer used by all killers before him, except now he did it through an app, taunted Kirby, telling her how the cops outside were useless and wouldn't be able to help her if he decided to strike. He told her he was watching her right now, that very minute, even commenting on the film they were watching. Obviously being fed the info by Jill by text. Charlie told Kirby he was close. He could see everything. In fact, he was so close that he could even be there right now, just inside the bedroom closet. Kirby is a ballsy woman, and she called the killer's bluff, jerking open Jill's closet door to reveal nothing more than clothes. To this, Charlie simply replied, I never said whose closet I was in. He then burst from Olivia Morris's closet, stabbing the terrified teen multiple times, eventually gutting her, covering the bedroom in blood in the process. So the cops were useless. They were stationed right outside and didn't hear the screaming girls from the house they were assigned to protect. They were doing a perimeter check at the time, choosing to go as a pair rather than splitting up for their own protection. Everyone deserves to feel safe in their job, but their job as police is to protect others. I'm sorry if they were nervous, but they were armed and trained for these kind of situations. Them looking out for themselves caused this girl's death and gave the killer the chance to escape. But not before having a little scuffle with the legendary Sidney Prescott, who, unlike the cops, ran headfirst into the Morris household. But despite her best efforts, Charlie was able to overpower her and make his escape before Haas and Perkins made it to the scene. Not quite finished yet, though, Charlie followed Sydney to the local hospital, where she was taken for a checkup after her encounter with Charlie back at the house. Jill overheard an argument between Sydney and her tour publicist Rebecca Walters, then texted Charlie to give him the position of his next kill. Stalking Rebecca to the hospital parking lot, Charlie can be seen on CCTV tormenting Rebecca at her car before chasing her to the elevator, stabbing her and then dumping her body from the high-rise car park down to the crowd below. A crowd of journalists there for Sheriff Riley's press conference in relation to the fresh wave of killings in a small, quiet suburban town. By the time police made it back to Rebecca's car, Charlie was gone, again leaving very little evidence and no witnesses outside some old, grainy CCTV footage. 
Okay, it's honesty time. We have a confession to make. We suck at socials! No good at Insta! Can't send a tweet, or an X, or whatever that supervillain looking motherfucker is calling it now. Stick to your space cars, Elon! But we know, ye wanna chat. You wanna be kept updated. You wanna be alive alive all the goddamn time. So we're getting down from the anti-social soapbox and giving this a try. So come chat to us on Insta and Twitter at Alive Alive Pod or hit us up by email at it's alive alive pod at gmail.com. We wanna hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. This is a project. It's still a work in progress, and we just wanna give you more what you like and less of what you can't stand. So give us a like, give us a follow, we'll always hit you back and we'll always try to reply to everyone. So come say hi. We don't bite. Well, at least Amy doesn't. And she keeps me well fed, so you got nothing to worry about. Now, back to the show! <laughs> Gail is still trying to get to the bottom of the mystery and convinces Sydney to come with her to the local cinema club at the high school run by Charlie Walker, Walker and Robbie Mercer. The two claim that the killer is attempting to kill people in a remake fashion. While some things may be similar, the killer's style is not going to be exactly like the first time. And to make the situation even more intense, they may even be recording the murders to post them on the internet. When someone brings up that the end of the murder spree of the fir- from the first time was at a house party, Charlie and Robbie immediately assume that the killer may strike at their upcoming Stabaton, where they'll be running all the movies in the Stab series. Some question why hold a sabaton in the first place but the guys assume that they aren't the only party in town as teenagers on a friday night have plenty of other party options yeah if you're inspired by ghostface chances are regardless of what other parties happening that night you'll be at a sabaton in this case not just at it but one of the organizers of the party itself so with charlie busy at sabaton it's safe to say jill takes responsibility for the next three kills as most of her peers were at the party and Jill was rightfully confined at home by Sydney, her mother, and the police escort, Jill decided to up the ante and provide Charlie with his alibi. That night, Jill single-handedly killed Deputy Haas and Perkins along with her own mother, Kate Roberts. Cutting Haas's throat, stabbing Perkins in the skull, and stabbing her own mother in the neck through the front door's letterbox as she desperately tried to hold the door closed and keep the killer out. Not to be outdone at the Stabaton, Charlie noticed a rogue Gale snooping around. Back to her old tricks, planting spy cameras around the party in order to try and catch the killer in the act. But before she could get away, Charlie attacked, stabbing Gale once in the shoulder. The situation could have been a lot worse for her, except she had had the sense to call Dewey before arriving to the party, giving him her location. Dewey, as he has always did, arrived just in time to pop off a few few shots in the killer's direction, scaring him away, saving Gale, but again losing the killer. The gunshots pretty much put a premature end to the Stabathon party, and with nothing left to do, Charlie, Robbie and Kirby went back to Kirby's house to meet Jill and chill for the rest of the night. Trevor also turned up claiming to have been texted by Jill and invited over. Jill vehemently denied this, swearing she did not send a text. So at this point, the police know they're dealing with two killers again. I mean, the three deaths at Jill House and the attack on Gail at Charlie's party happened at virtually the same time. Now, this shady text message, the group has to know there's a good chance the killers are amongst them. If they didn't know, they were about to find out. Because like the killers who donned the mask before them, this was the planned closing reveal scene for Jill and Charlie. The culmination of all their well-thought-out plans. And they were well-thought-out plans. We're about to get into it now, but Jill was so close to achieving her goal. One tiny mistake cost her, but of all the killers that came before, she was definitely closest to getting away with it. 
First kill of the night would go to the VP of the cinema club and Charlie's supposed best friend, Robbie Mercer. Charlie viciously and without hesitation cut him down in the front yard of the Reed residence. Just previous to this, Kirby stated that her and Charlie were inside the living room alone watching Stab 6 and were beginning to get cosy together when Trevor came in and interrupting the couple and agitating Charlie. Seeing the movie they were watching, he began to make fun of the ghost of Ghostface, causing Charlie to storm off in her age. This rage is presumably what drove him to kill Robbie so viciously directly after. Kirby, hearing the commotion, went towards the front door to go find the source of the noise, but before she could open the door, she was interrupted again, this time by Jill, who had now claimed to have found her phone, which she claimed had had been out of her possession in the time Trevor had claimed to have been texted. She claimed Trevor was lying and that there was no such message had been sent from her phone. I've never said claimed so many times in my fucking life. Uh Allegedly. (laughs) So obviously this laid the groundwork for when she tries to frame Trevor as the new age Billy. It was right then Sydney came bursting through the doors. She began to beg Jill to leave with her immediately. But before they could say or do any more, Robbie, with his final ounce of energy, came stumbling up the yard, dropping dead just a few steps away from where they were standing. Before they could process the teen's debt in their mind, Charlie came sprinting towards them, knife out and ready to stab. He chased Sydney and Jill upstairs while Kirby, the horror nerd who knows you should never run upstairs, did the opposite, making her way to the basement. Charlie, following Jill's orders, followed them instead of Kirby. Sydney, trying to save Jill, told her to hide under the bed while she led Charlie to believe she had jumped from the first floor roof and was going to get help. A fact Charlie knew to be untrue. He then chased Sydney around the first floor roof, eventually knocking her off to the hard lawn below. No boat to save you this time, Sid. Luckily, before he got there, she had the chance to call Dewey, giving him their location and putting a serious time constraint on the two psycho killers. Thankfully, Sydney wasn't too banged up and was able to pull herself together and get back to Kirby and down to the basement. Here, they would come across an unmasked Charlie, banging on the back door, begging to be left in. Deja vu again, Randy and Stu accusing each other and begging to be left in the house away from the killer. Remembering that moment, Sydney asked Kirby, can you trust him? I mean, really trust him. Any doubt, any doubt at all. And she had to leave him on the other side of that door. They then saw Jill in costume come up behind him. And again, like Billy and Stu, Jill pretended to stab her partner and take him hostage. Tying him to a chair by the poolside, just as it had been done to Stephen Orth 15 years previously. Following through with that narrative, Jill, like Billy, rang Kirby, who is the stand-in for Casey Becker. She began the trademark Ghostface trivia game that had been done so many times before by her predecessors. Warm-up question. Jason's weapon. Kirby got it right. A machete. Michael Myers. Butcher knife. Leatherface. Chainsaw. Freddy Krueger. Razor hands. Name the movie that started the slasher craze. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Last House on the Left, or Psycho? Psycho. None of the above. Peeping Tom, 1960, first movie to ever put the audience in a killer's POV. No, thankfully, Jill's a sympathetic type and gave Kirby one last chance, though. And I will say that we talked about Peeping Tom, actually, now that you mention it in uh, one of our Behind the Masks. Yeah, we did, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. when we went through the slasher genre ourselves. Uh-huh. Check that out. $5 a month. Not bad. Name the remake of the groundbreaking horror movie in which the villain... It was at this point Kirby says things get a bit blurry and she can't remember the end of the question. All she remembers is standing there rattling off the name of every single remake she could think of from the last few years. One of the answers must have been right because the killer said no more and she was free to go and let Charlie loose. 
While all this was going on, Sydney had snuck back into the house to go rescue Jill from under the bed. But obviously, when she got there, she discovered Jill was gone from the hiding place. Kirby ran to Charlie and cut him free, frantically moving to try and get the pair out of there. That's when Charlie let the mask slip, stabbing Kirby in the stomach, saying, Kirby, this is making a move, as he stabbed her. He was raging that after four years of classes together, that tonight of all nights is when she decided to notice him. There's a theory similar to the theory we spoke about back at episode one, that like Stu didn't really want to kill Randy. Charlie really didn't want to do this one. Jill pushed him into it to kind of solidify his loyalty to her over Kirby, who he had been previously nuts about. Even Kirby herself said she could feel the hesitation in his stabs, accidentally making the experience slower and worse for Kirby, but also possibly being the reason she survived as it wasn't as a messy a wound. Usually Charlie and Jill just slashed, hacked and stabbed indiscriminately at their victims, but this was two careful stabs. Isn't she lucky to be loved by such a sympathetic little insult? (laughs) So now we're at the end and the big reveal. Charlie re-entered the house where he found Sydney searching the house for Jill and Kirby. Sneaking up behind her, he caught her by surprise and took her from behind, putting a knife to her throat. The knife still dripping with hot, fresh blood coming straight from Kirby Reed's guts. Sydney remember asking where Jill was, to which Charlie replied, You think she gets away? You think anyone gets away? Sydney then managed to break free of Charlie's grip, ironic, and make a break for it, only to run into Ghostface number two, who stabbed her right in the gut. As Sydney backed up, holding her stomach, trying to manage the pain, trying once again to survive, she looked up in horror as the Reaper unmasked before her. I can only imagine what Sydney must have been thinking, standing there, probably expecting to see Trevor, and suddenly her own cousin is standing there in front of her dressed as the ghost that's been haunting her for the last 15 years now. And at this point, the mask had truly slipped off of Jill's face. The audience would have heard me make that reference a few times now, so I'm going to explain it. Serial killers become serial killers because of their chameleon-like ability to blend into their surroundings. It's said that the everyday face the general public will see on a serial killer is the mask they wear to blend in. Usually the only people that see the true face of the killer are their victims and they rarely survive to tell the tale. A famous example of this is Ted Bundy. In his second murder trial, he was being tried for the murder of his last victim, 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach. Ted again represented himself in the case, something he was known to do. When the verdict came back guilty and enraged, Bundy screamed, You're wrong! Tell them they're wrong! As Bundy screamed in rage, a picture was taken. In this picture, they say you can see the face that was the final face for possibly 36 plus young women. So the face Sydney had been looking at for the past few days was Jill's mask. And once she revealed herself to Sydney, she let it slip, not needing it anymore since she thought Sydney would soon be dead. And earlier, we see that Charlie almost lets it slip when Trevor wound him up about, about Kirby in the stab movies. So masks off and with all the victims dead or subdued, the pair took off with the trademark stab pre-kill confession, giving Sydney all the details to their evil plot for fame. What happened next at first appeared to be an identical scene to Billy and Stu in 1996. Sydney cornered in the kitchen, the killer standing over her, spilling their guts before they spill hers. And the Patsy, the framey, Trevor, tied up on the floor, ready to play the role of Neil Prescott. But unlike Neil, a love-scorned Jill wasted no time putting a bullet square between his legs, then square between his eyes. Bullet to the balls for cheating. 
take note, guys. At least you'd more sense than Billions do. Kill them first before setting up the alibi. Half right. She had more sense, but Charlie didn't. And he thought the plan was to follow the steps of the original step by step. Like I said at the start of this, this is a remake. The premise is the same, but the twist has to be a bit different. And while Charlie thought they were channeling Billy and Stu, Jill was really channeling Nancy and Mickey. And when it came time to do the alibi stabbing, she went first, sinking her blade deep into the heart of a shocked and unsuspecting Charlie. Trevor was indeed the main patsy, the Billy of this massacre. But what was Billy without Stu? And that's where Charlie came in. Although Jill had told him they would be the real-life version of Sydney and Randy and could be the celebrity survivor couple together, she had no intention of following through with that. A lone survivor works best. At least, that's what she told Sydney. Is this the part where she kicks the shit out of herself? I've read the forensic reports and Sydney's statement, and if this is true, it's crazy. Well, crazy is kind of her gimmick here, but we'll get to that in a minute. At this point, she explained to Sydney that the massacre was never about killing her. It was about becoming her. All her life, she'd lived in the shadow cast by Sydney's story. She knew from a young age that if fucked up shit happened to you, then fame and fortune would follow. And now, at the dawn of the age of the influencer, this goal was more achievable than ever. That's when she revealed that all the murders had been recorded and edited to point all the evidence in Trevor and Charlie's direction. But for her, this only works with the lone survivor, and it was time for Sydney to pass the torch. She then stabbed Sydney again and watched in delight as she sunk to the floor, blood gushing from her stomach. So now we're at the point I was talking about, right? Right. Okay. So in Sydney's statement to the police afterwards, she stated that before she passed out from blood loss and pain, that as far as she could remember, Jill hadn't a scratch on her. At least not from that night. She did get a scratch from Charlie the night that he killed Olivia Morris, but this was once again done to keep the cops off Jill's trail. So that was Sydney's statement. But when police and first responders hit the scene, they found a beaten and bloodied Jill curled up in the fetal position right next to Sydney's unconscious body. So what happened during the time it took for police to show up after stabbing Sydney? Well, forensic specialists have come up to the conclusion that the only possible answer is that she bet herself up. What, like Ed Norton in Fight Club? I was thinking kind of Jim Carrey and Liar Liar, but either works. So how do they think she went about this? Okay, so when Jill arrived in the hospital, she had scratch marks on her face, but her DNA was later found under Trevor's fingernails. The theory here is that after untying him to pose the body, she took his hands and did this to herself. She also used his hand to rip out a clump of her hair. Jill also had a stab wound to the shoulder, and this was done using the knife used throughout most of the massacre. Forensic specialists suggest a slight dent in the living room wall matches the butt of the knife, and that Jill rested the knife against the wall before driving her own shoulder into it. It then appears from the crime scene that Jill ran headfirst into a hanging picture on the wall before throwing herself through a glass coffee table. Forensics were able to figure this out by matching glass taken from Jill's body and clothes to the glass found in the house in the offending areas. This may all seem unbelievable to us normal people, but remember the original killers Billy and Stu stabbed each other multiple times in a bid to get away with their crimes. These people are motivated by something more than we can understand. And maybe it's the lack of emotion or simply that allows them to take such extreme measures, or maybe it's just the motivation to stay straight, to stay free and continue their massacre. Either way, we'll probably never really know. The point here for Jill is it worked. And had she not left one little detail unchecked, she might have gotten away with this completely. 
and still be out there orchestrating Ghostface attacks to this day. That one little detail, Sydney didn't die. Seems like a pretty big detail to me. As Jill made her way to the hospital, the story already began to spill out to the media. Another Woodsboro massacre. Ten dead, three survivors, two critical. Jill didn't know that. She thought she was the only survivor and she wouldn't find out until she was at the hospital. Once she had been cleaned up and her wounds tended to, Dewey went to ask Jill a few questions. It looked like an open and shut case with all evidence pointing to Trevor and Charlie. It was here he revealed to Jill that Sydney had survived. She still was not in the woods, but she was stable in the ICU. He didn't mention Kirby, who also survived her wounds, but her case at the time seemed much more dire and chances of survival at this point were slim, so maybe Dewey didn't want to get her hopes up. Judging by what happened next, it was a go- it was probably good he didn't, because if Jill decided to take out Kirby first, Kirby would have been in no position to defend herself. Do you not think at this point, regardless of if Sydney and Kirby survive or not, she'd be caught if anything happens to the other two witnesses? It's 2011, like surely the hospital has CCTV. She probably would have only went for Sydney anyway. Kirby surviving was only backing up her claim. She never saw Jill unmasked. She only knows for a fact that Charlie was one of the killers. And even to her, Trevor would have made sense as the second, judging by the way he was acting beforehand and randomly showing up saying he got a text from Jill inviting him. So regardless of if she knew Kirby was alive or not, she would have gone straight for Sydney's room first, eliminate the witness, the one person you know for sure that could finger you for the crimes. Yeah, I don't know what the CCTV situation was in the hospital. I know they're in every hospital that I've been in in the last 20 years or so. Mm. So you'd have to assume that they have some sort of security system. If not for situations like this, then to watch and protect the hospital staff. Mm. Especially when they house so much drugs, like, you know? Oh, yeah. Either way, Jill didn't seem too worried about that. And as soon as the sheriff left her room, she tore out her IV and monitor pads and took off towards the ICU department to finish the job she started. As she entered the room, she woke the drowsy Sydney out of her restless sleep. Before she could call for help, Jill was on top of her, her hands gripped tightly around Sydney's neck. But this is Sydney fucking Prescott, and this was not her first rodeo. She gouged the eyes of Jill, eventually getting enough of a grip on her to smack her head into the bed's metal guardrail. From here, they struggled wrestling around on the floor. Jill burst Sydney's stitches in the process, causing her to begin to bleed again. Judging by the state of the room after, Sydney put up quite a fight, even with the freshly opened wound. With Sydney down, Jill turned her attention to the door where she could hear Dewey coming. She struck him in the face with a bedpan as he entered the room, knocking him on the floor. Seemed very Dewey-like. People might be asking, was it a coincidence that Dewey showed up or did something click to make him go check on Sydney? This is where I get to get one up on Josh. So you've been saying it was one little mistake that caught you. Yeah, not making sure Sydney was dead. It's in the horror rules. If you don't shoot them right between the eyes, then there's always a chance they'll survive. Yeah, that was only her first mistake. Her second came when she spoke to Dewey in the hospital, just before she found out Sydney was alive. All right. She asked Dewey how Gay was doing and made a joke that they now had matching wounds and should write a book together. When Dewey spoke to Gail, who he went to visit right after, talking to Jill, Gail pointed out that Jill shouldn't know about Gail's injury. She wasn't present when it happened and it hadn't been released to the public yet. So this prompted Dewey to go back to check on Sydney, worrying he might have, ever lo- have overlooked Jill as a suspect too early and given the killer too much information. So he ran down the hallway screaming Sydney's name. Also giving Jill the heads up that he was on the way. Yep. <laughs> oh, I love this guy. 
In the meantime, Gail had alerted Deputy Judy Hicks to the possible oversight, and the two raced after Dewey as backup to the possible to the possible attack. But Dewey, now incapacitated on the floor, gives Jill the perfect opportunity to end her story. His sidearm. Again, an element from the original. His sidearm was used by Sydney to keep Randy and Stu at bay outside the house and was later used by Billy to shoot Randy. Gail entered the room next, only to be stopped in her tracks at the sight of Dewey's gun pointed in her direction. Before Jill could get in a shot, Deputy Hicks lunged at Gail, knocking them both out of the way of the bullet and over an empty bed to momentary safety. They stayed down as Jill warned that any funny movement and Dewey would get it in the head. She demanded Deputy Hicks's gun. Hicks rose up and tossed the gun, which Jill kicked away. She then demanded Hicks to stand up with her hands kept high where she could see them. As Hicks rose, Jill took a shot, knocking the deputy to the floor again. I actually forget to add here, she survives this shot because mm. she is wearing a bulletproof vest. All right. As all cops were. So, yeah, always go for the head in these situations. Now it was Gail's turn. Unarmed and with no way to defend herself, she had no choice but to follow the demands of the demented psycho killer. But as she rose, she could see some activity taking place in the background behind Jill. Sydney. Gail did her best to keep Jill's focus on her, keeping her talking momentarily to allow Sydney to get in position. She then asked Jill if she could have some last words. Jill allowed it, to which Gail screamed, Clear. That's when Sydney popped up right behind Jill. Two electrified shock panels in her hand. She pressed them into Jill's skull and let it rip, frying her brains and ending the spree of Ghostface number seven, Jill Roberts. And just like in every other case, <laughs> well, she wasn't there. Yeah. She was down, but she wasn't out, and she jumped up momentarily. And this is how we know Judy Hicks survived because she jumps up and takes the final shot that hits the killer between the eyes okay. and finishes him off. Because as we all know, you gotta get him in the fucking head, right? <laughs> Electrocuting him doesn't just do the job. No. Actually, funny enough, they just electrocuted Stu, so I wonder. No. You never know. <laughs> and that's it. The Fort Massacre out of seven that we know about so far. Three more to go. Two that revolve around Woodsboro and some of our much-loved survivors. And one from Atlanta that is the only case I know of that is 100% a Ghostface copycat but has no ties or relation to anyone in this original story. The never-ending story, Halloween style. Yeah, pretty much. But leaving Halloween for a little while next week, we'll be getting into the Christmas spirit, looking at the craziest Christmas crimes that have taken place within the horrorverse. Getting festive in Horrorland. Yeah, our cool new tree decorations turned up this week. We got Myers, Kruger, Jason, and Bubba Sawyer wrapped in Christmas lights. Our tree is going to be spooky as hell this Mm. year. I got pics of the decorations up on our Facebook and Instagram at Alive Alive Pod. We are also on TikTok and YouTube at the same handle at a live alive pod and you can hit us up by email at it's alive alive pod at gmail.com like we said last week we're coming into the christmas holiday season we have so a few more new things to come up on patreon one or two more things to drop before we take our break for a week at the moment the patreon exclusive shows behind the mask and real monsters are going strong at about 15 16 episodes each up mm. there all for only five dollars a month that's patreon.com forward slash iaa pod we cover the columbine high school massacre and and scream on the show this week. Our mainstream of free shows like this one are our Saturday mini episodes Say What and our shows Creepypasta Crypt and Mini Monsters will continue to drop on all good podcast apps throughout the holidays. So subscribe to the show to get new episode alerts and please give us a rate and review. Suggest us to friends and family so we can finish the year off on a high note. 
But that's it for now. If you're new and you enjoyed this show, go back and check out our new and improved Go Play series that we did to kick off this show back in August. But until next week, I'm Dr. Harley Ray Smokenstein, THC. And I'm Amy Rose. Happy almost Christmas. It's Alive Alive, all the guts and gore with none of the guilt. See you next week. Same Alive Alive time, same Horrorverse channel. Love you. Bye-bye. Okay, lady. I love you. Bye-bye.